What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with another pod. Man, we got a packed show this week. A lot of stuff I'm really excited to get into. I'm going to talk about a concert I went to last week, new music from Logic and Gorillaz, Cocaine Bear, the uh, surprisingly successful film that it is, despite that title, the Emily Bronte biopic film Emily, starring Emma Mackey, and of course, Formula One, Drive to Survive, Season 5, docu-series, back on Netflix. A lot of stuff I'm really excited to get into, so let's just do that. Follow the pod, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, linktree.com slash nostalgiapod for wherever you want to get it. Just make sure you get it. Let's jump right into it. Let's go to Central C right now, the concert I went to. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Central C's Still Loading Tour concert that I saw last week in Boston at Big Night Live, Central C live in concert. I was really excited to catch Central C at a small venue show, his first tour period in the United States, part of this larger still loading tour that he had kicked off in Europe last year. This date in Boston actually was supposed to kind of be a one-off last year and it got rescheduled and pushed back to a bigger venue as part of this bigger North American tour. So he finally came and he's, you know, he's touring the US right now. And I was really excited to see Central Sea because of course it's hard to see British rappers, broadly speaking, in the US. They don't tour here all that often. I was really excited to see Dave last year, which I did and talked about on the show. Check that out, youtube.com plus nostalgia pod. But Central Sea has had a really surprising rise here in the United States. You know, we reviewed his second mixtape 23 you know, about a year ago on the show, I wasn't expecting him to get as big as he got in the United States, largely off the back of, of course, his hit single Doja, which, you know, came out last summer and, you know, got that Cole Bennett video and just kind of took off and really went more viral than, uh, than expected. And, you know, that being said, I wasn't sure what kind of crowd to expect seeing Central Sea live in concert, you know, Everyone knows what happened with Steve Lacey's most recent tour where it was flooded with TikTok fans that only knew the hook of Bad Habit and didn't really know his or appreciate his music. I was kind of feeling, you know, maybe that'd be the case with Central C and there'd be, you know, Doja fans that know, uh, uh, you know, someone told Doja Cat trying to indulge in that and, and nothing else. But I was really happy that that was not the case. The crowd I saw, I was a sold out show, of course, this crowd I was with really knew Central C's music. They knew his deep cuts and knew songs from wild west his first mixtape they were really into it they really knew all the words and that was really fun energy to be with and central c you know he said it himself during during the show he's like he's not much of a a public speaker so he just kind of you know went through his set list and it was probably only like a 50 minute show but he did i think like 18 20 tracks and for someone with two mixtapes and a few other singles he basically did everything that he has so I think it was a really satisfying show to see. And of course, small venue show, you got to appreciate that when you get it. Right off the bat, comes out to loading off Wild West, one of the bigger hits off that. And that was like, I was right away, the energy was there. People know it. That's a pretty uh, enjoyable beat. And like I said, he just kind of ripped into stuff. You know, I thought um, commitment issues came up, come up later. You know, one of his first singles before Wild West even came out, that got a huge pop. And people really knew those words. I love that song. It was really cool to hear hear that. Um, another big pop was with uh, Let Go, which came out last December. That's the song that, of course, kind of famously slash randomly samples Passenger's song uh, Let Her Go from about 10 years ago. And he just kind of let the crowd, uh, you know, sing sing that sample, sing, sing that interpolation. That was pretty cool. Uh, Reshell Therapy got a lot of love. Uh, Straight Back to It got a lot of love. Like, he's just... Central C just got a lot of fun deep cuts, a lot of fun bangers, and people were really into it, which I loved. Uh, I was really surprised that he, or I guess I just hadn't been paying attention to the set lists so far, but he did his LA Leakers freestyle, which of course kind of went viral online for Sench uh, basically doing a version of Big LZ Bonics where he explained uh, UK slang in a freestyle and she performed that and of course this crowd knew those words you know that was a freestyle that i thought was pretty cool pretty inspired i thought i've listened to it a ton since then but apparently the people at this show did and they were they were really loving it and i think you know he ended it uh, i think the only way he could end it with of course obsessed with you with the big pink panther sample which was his biggest hit until doja came out and then before doja which of course was the closer which was exploded the room as you can expect 
before right before Doge at the penultimate track, he did Day in the Life, his you know first like big viral moment before Wild West came out, and man, that that shit still is so so damn hard. Great song, and again, the crowd just really loved it and like really went into it, and I just was. I just had a really nice time, you know, again, it was kind of a short show. It started like right at like nine Oh five. It was pretty early, you know, Wednesday night, but I mean, it's tough to tough to beat, beat, beat that on a Wednesday night. So really happy uh, with, with how the show went with Sanchez's performance. You know, he does have a, uh, uh, what do you call it? A background vocals, um, like reference track, like the vocals are there, but the mix was very precise. It was very low. So you really only hear, Sench's actual rapping and he really does go into his songs which is pretty good you know obviously rappers when they're still coming up still new still unseasoned they're often not the best live performers and they'll grow into that but it seems like Central C has already grown into being a pretty good performer already despite his young career which is awesome so of course I'm really excited to see what is next for this guy because he is easily the hottest British rapper in the United States and the fact that he's had such success and reach in the United States thus far, which has gone beyond, of course, TikTok and, and Doja, um, that definitely says something. So I'm sure he'll be releasing a project this year. And when, when he does, I'll be re- reviewing that. So make sure you subscribe, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. And leave me a comment below. Have you seen Central C? Are you into his music? What are you looking forward to next about him? And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Gorilla's eighth album, Cracker Island. First album since Song Machine in 2020. Uh, yeah, Gorilla's back, the virtual band from Damon Auburn. I think people know him by now. I don't, I'll don't. i be honest, I wasn't checking for these singles. I haven't been super into Gorilla's in a while. I think the last two albums, Song Machine and The Now Now, have been better than Humans from 2017. But overall, I think Gorillaz is definitely in a late stage period of their existence and not as interesting as they once were. But still, a noteworthy group that whenever anything comes out, it's worth paying attention to. And, you know, that's how I was going into Cracker Island. And honestly, I think this is an album that meets expectations. And if you had any experience with the most recent Gorillaz albums, this will sound pretty familiar. I don't think this will really create any new fans though because it's really nothing outside the box that damon has done before um it's kind of the same old thing right damon auburn giving you kind of his vocal melody style that we know at this point and bringing in a bunch of guests that kind of fit well on his songs sometimes those guests really make songs pop i think of a song like charger off humans with grace jones you know like really inspired pick other times you know it's just okay or it just sounds like a gorilla song you know of course feel good ink the classic with de la is like the gold standard of this it's hard to meet those highs every single time though right in the case of cracker island i think they brought in a lot of guests that kind of feel uh, of a piece with gorilla's music right you have thundercat on here you got beck on here you got tame impala obviously on here you know they all make sense i think cracker island the title track with thundercat sounds pretty cool you know, um, those kind of chanty vocals, that drum line, um, you know, obviously Thundercat's bass sounds pretty good. Um, the next track, Oil, with Stevie Nicks, obviously a, a nice pull as a feature. Um, and the duet with Damon that Stevie does sounds pretty good. Um, but I don't think it's like anything like, like spectacular, you know. I think, if anything, the fact that Gorilla's got Bad Bunny on a song with Tormenta, that actually speaks to like something outside the box from gorillas and kind of bringing somebody new into their orbit that doesn't immediately fit you know um th- that that's probably the most standout like song just from like a construction standpoint because it kind of feels out of place with the rest of cracker island um you know i think clearly <laughs> the best song on this this which is which is a single it's been out for a little bit now would be silent running featuring adelaide omatayo um Adelaide was part of like the humans like choir so he's had been in the um gorillas orbit but man i think silent running is, is an incredible track and like honestly like the best gorillas track to me in like 10 years like this is the best gorillas song since like plastic beach gorillas like it's been a minute um just like the vocal melody from damon is incredibly catchy um and incredibly passionate like sing i think his sing is incredible and just like the the synths 
on this song, especially in the chorus, so so catchy. And Adelaide's vo- uh, vocals just fits so well. Like to me, that was like a just vibey as fuck song. Like in general, like that's what you expect from a gorilla, right? Like vibes. But like that is, I think, like a true like like masterwork of like giving you like those real vibes and like the way you want them. And man, uh, that that really kind of blew me away from otherwise my general feelings about gorillas, which is that they're not really an exciting or groundbreaking group anymore. But that's also okay. Like this is the eighth gorillas album. Gorillas have been out a long time. Damon Albarn has been at it with gorillas and elsewhere for a long time. It's okay that they're not at the cutting edge anymore. It's at worst still really listenable, really vibey stuff. Obviously it's well made. So it's hard to get too like worked up about it, but I'm also not gonna get too excited about it. But Silent Running as a song is like a clear exception to that general sentiment. But let me know what did you think? Were you really excited for a new girls album after what we've had recently? Did this rap, uh, drastically change your perception of recent Gorilla's work? How are you feeling? What was your favorite song? And for more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Logic's ninth album, College Park. Logic's first album since his Def Jam deal ended last year with his album Vinyl Days. This is his first independent release from Logic. And I'll be honest, you know, Logic has been putting out music every single year mixtape, album format, whatever it might be. He's released a ton of music. It's even acknowledged on this song. It was like 18 projects, 10 years, whatever it was. Um, Logic's put out a lot of music, and Logic has been such an inconsistent artist for this whole run that it's hard for me to get too excited about any one <clears throat> Logic release. <clears throat> it's hard for me to get too excited about any one Logic release, and I just have to take it for what it is and evaluate from there. Like I'm not even really checking for the singles. I'm just letting for the album come out and figure out what it is. And thankfully, I think Logic has, I hope, honed in on his strengths at this point. This seemed to be evident last year with Vinyl Days. You know, Logic sounds good on dusty old boom bap. Logic sounds good on 90s hip-hop production. Logic sounds really middling and unspectacular on modern-day trap beats and 808s the bobby tarantino stuff isn't good but the other stuff like final days like college park like of course the fake retirement album on uh, no pressure those those are cool he sounds good on those that's when his ear for production stands out that's when his flow and general rap ability really shines and college park to me feels a lot like vinyl days did except vinyl days is an album that he clearly crafted and put out to satisfy those Def Jam, you know, contract obligations and just get that out of the way. College Park, on the other hand, has more of a creative through line and actually think at least has something what's more interesting to it, right? Like Vinyl Days just felt like more Logic songs. They were fine, but nothing was that spectacular about it. I don't think College Park is a spectacular Logic album, or even a great Logic album, but the fact that it's like grounded in like 2011 like logic's come up days and you have these through line of all these outros on these songs being skits regarding logic and big lembo and castro his you know collaborators of many years that are featured on many of his songs the fact that it's like all of them like going to a show in 2011 a show for 150 people and it's like logic before the fame that's actually a really cool premise to like kind of ground ground the music even if like the songwriting doesn't like consistently like match uh that like framing i i find that at least a little bit inspiring because there's like little easter eggs for like logic fans you know acknowledgements like logic's getting posted on two dope boys like shout out the blogger <laughs> shout out the come up back in the day if you know you know um logic acknowledges that he doesn't smoke weed at this time which of course we know is no longer true <laughs> um there was also the reference to oh logic has a dream about having rizza on a song which is uh, yeah, rizza's featured on you know track one on a college park cruise through the universe be cool if we got the whole clan on a song one day well of course logic did that in like 2018 and it was an four on the song wu-tang forever it's like there's little like tidbits that i just kind of enjoyed about these skits uh grounding effect i don't know like it's nothing too special but it was kind of cool and then like in terms of the tracks like yeah like i think like i said like there's some moments here where logic does what he's what he's good at it's like pretty solid you know i think red pill seven um which is not a track title that I enjoy, but 
you know, I think there's actually some good flow on there and even reference to his flow. My flow is non-binary. It's never, it never misses. So it's like, oh, actually decent wit from him because we know logic is prone to some stinkers as well. Um, Gaithersburg freestyle, which is like all like the local homies, um, Big Lembo and Castro on there. Also shout out Fat Trell being featured on there. Fat Trell, blast from the past. Haven't heard him in a minute. That was unexpected to say the least. Um, Shimmy with Joy Badass. I thought was really great like i think the logic flow there is honestly like just really heat like that that was probably his best um performance rapping wise um to me but that was pretty awesome come on down was also uh really great uh light year uh which is like a long outro uh last call type track but like one of like the sections of it you have the beat from kendrick lamar's rigor mortis off section 80 which i obviously is inspired um and welcome beat to hear nice pull um, but yeah, just I think generally, like, it's it's more logic music, you know, like Clone Wars 3, another example of, you know, th- this, this, this type of logic, right? Like, it's nothing he hasn't done before. And I think that's okay. Like, logic has been making music so long. And also, logic's been so fucking rich and so fucking famous for so long that I've just kind of given up hope to him, him being, like, super insightful with his his lyrics at this point, like it's kind of clear that he was much more like interesting when he was still kind of rising and still kind of giving like these fully baked concepts, like under pressure and the incredible true story. Like we're, we're pretty far removed from that kind of stuff at this point, but I think that's okay. Like I don't hold like the fake retirement against him. Um, he's far from the first rapper to do that. And now we're three projects since then already because he works so much. But yeah, I think like Logic, he's just going to make stuff like this. He's going to put out beat tapes under other names. He's going to go on Twitch. He's going to be himself. And I think that's, that's I guess, good enough. Like I've kind of like let it go in terms of like him uh, not reaching a higher plane. I think that's fine. And I just hope that he kind of sticks to this style of music because this is what's interesting to me and I think what's interesting to most of his fans, um, which is, it harkens back to his mixtape stuff, his most popular music, you know? We can only hope that we don't hear Bobby Tarantino 4 ever, but I'm not going to hold my breath. But leave a comment below. What did you think about uh, College Park? Did you like it more than Vinyl Days? Did you like it more than Bobby Tarantino 3? How are you feeling about Logic these days? For more rap reviews, more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. All right, and let's move on to movies we'll start with the emily bronte biopic emily what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a review of emily the biopic film about the english author emily bronte starring emma mackey in the title role you know to be honest up front i am not super familiar with emily bronte she's very famous as a you know victorian england uh, english literature figure for her one novel, Withering Heights, which has become a staple to this day. Uh, but I wasn't really familiar with the Bronte story, which has a lot of intrigue to it. However, I am quite familiar and interested in Emma Mackey as a acting talent. I think she's really been on everyone's radar in a huge way since she broke out with Sex Education on Netflix, obviously. And since then, she's kind of been, I think, impressing with taking interesting roles you know she was in the french romance film eiffel she'll be in the upcoming barbie film from greta gerwig and then of course you know jumping into a biopic role you know really meaty meaty part to really show off her her chops and she definitely seems to be having a really tactful approach to her career which is really exciting because anyone who's seen her in sex education or even death on the nile where i think she was arguably the best the best part about that movie you know she is a really impressive uh actor really expressive uh, with her face and just an impressive new talent. So really exciting. And in the case of Emily, the film, I think it's a, once again, unsurprisingly, a great showcase for Emma Mackey's talent, you know, and what's interesting about, uh, Emily, the film and why I think it's at least rises above standard biopic fare, standard, you know, Victorian England, uh, period drama is Frances O'Connor, her directorial debut, obviously a longtime actor. she, actually has a lot of, I think, directorial flair and intrigue with how this movie is constructed. Notably, Emily as a film kind of plays fast and loose with the facts. You know, Emily Bronte's story is not uh, super rich on Wikipedia. There's a lot of unknown, I guess, to how this went. You know, Bronte, of course, part of this uh, general literature artistic family, 
in terms of you know landed Victorian uh, gentry goes. And O'Connor, I think, does a really good job of really placing you in that period setting. There's some really awesome like landscape shots, you know, right around the Bronte house. They're just kind of like looking out on the vast English uh, countryside, and honestly, like watching uh, Emma Mackey uh, walk on that hill with her brother Branwell played by Fionn Whitehead. God, it really reminded me of uh, Joe and Laurie in Little Women 2019, just like really like sweeping uh, vista. But um, O'Connor gives you those landscape shots, but also like has some really cool like camera work where there's like this blue hue on the lens and there's almost like more dream like sequences and, there's a really impressive scene, probably the best scene in the film is this moment where Emily is with her siblings as well as uh, this local uh, clergyman who has come to the town at the pass of her father. And they're all like playing this um, kind of like guessing game charades type game where they would wear a like uh, theater mask, you know, full, full face mask and uh, the drama mask, you know, the, the iconic like, white mask and uh, act things out. And Emma Mackey, uh, as, as Emily, Emily really gives her all into it. This really like haunting scene, almost acting as if she was possessed, imbuing her, their, the, the sibling's dead mother in the process. It was really, I think, transportive scene. And just the way like O'Connor is able to weave these, these moments, which obviously this is like a manufactured uh, creative license type, type scene, but it's like incredibly effective. And, you know, I think movie does a really good job of highlighting why Emily Bronte was uh, viewed as a bit of a recluse and a bit of a outsider within her family and within her general community and how that perhaps could have led to her being the type of author she became. Um, I think, I think it all works really well and also is able to really hold your attention. Notably, of course, I think this movie would be lacking some kind of spice or tension if it wasn't for the fact that Emma Mackey and that clergyman who comes to town played by Oliver Jackson Coe and this clergyman, William Weidman, uh, they have amazing chemistry, Mackey and uh, Weidman. And once that chemistry becomes, you know, sexual tension in nature and eventually leads to uh, bedroom scenes, it's a uh, pretty palpable. And I think it's important that you have that also, Emily's relationship with her brother Branwell, once they become kind of kindred spirits and how they appreciate and view the world and view their community, you know, experimenting and using uh, opium, for example. I think those scenes are really good. Fionn Whitehead, who I like, didn't even recognize him, honestly. He's kind of longer hair in this. I didn't even recognize him, of course, from Dunkirk and Black Mirror. Like, I thought he, he, he was quite good as Branwell. And the Branwell, I think, like, piece of the story is really effective. There's this moment where Branwell and Emily like spying on like a neighbor's house and just kind of looking into this family through the window and like talking shit basically Th those scenes work really well as well uh, yeah so I think just in general like the the reason to watch this movie is if you're an Emily Bronte fan read the book obviously you'd want to see it but if not it's because of Emma Mackey she's a really talented actor in fact she won the BAFTA Rising Star earlier this month which is a you know pretty prestigious and notable award that I wish the Oscars had, you know, like a breakthrough performer type of award. Obviously, Emma Mackey broke through several years ago in sex education, but this is like the true like film breakthrough. So I understand that uh, from the BAFTA's point of view. But yeah, I'd say check it out, Emily. Pretty solid. It's been limited release. You know, it's little seen at this time, although it came out in the fall last year in the UK. So it's out there. Uh, but let me know. What do you think of Emily? Are you an Emma Mackey fan? Are you excited for her in Barbie? And for more movie reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. All right, and now let's move on to Cocaine Bear. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Cocaine Bear, the new premise film from Elizabeth Banks with an ensemble cast. Um, obviously, this is a movie that made a big splash with its trailer kind of coming out of nowhere for many people and seemingly was embraced by many online as well. And this movie overperformed at the box office with its opening weekend. Nice win for Universal. And... At the end of the day, it's exactly as the uh, title suggests. You know, uh, duffel bags of cocaine are dropped over the, uh, are we in Tennessee? South Carolina, I believe it's Tennessee or Georgia. So Southern um, mountains, basically, Blood Mountain. And this bear gets into and eats 
some of that cocaine and basically goes on a coke field rampage and hijinks ensue. Um, that is what the movie is. And if that is not something for you, this is definitely not a movie for you. But if you're into something so absurd and ridiculous like that very simple premise is, uh, you might be interested in Cocaine Bear. You know, it's based on a true story from, I believe, the 80s where a bear was found dead after ingesting a lot of cocaine that had been dropped from a plane. So it's obviously a uh, play on that where the bear doesn't die, of course, and instead a lot of people die in the process. And you get an ensemble cast, and in fact, you have an Americans reunion, Carrie Russell, Margot Martindale, as well as a cameo from Matthew Rees. Uh, Brooklyn Prince from the Florida Project is here. O'Shea Jackson Jr., Alden Ehrenreich, Ray Liotta in his final film role. Um, kind of funny that this is what this was. This is what that was. Um, a few other uh, people as well. You know, I think uh, ultimately it's a movie that I laughed at. I enjoyed watching. It's just funny and, and absurd and ridiculous. It probably should have been funnier and more absurd than it was. I thought the plot was like really unnecessarily convoluted. There's a lot of different characters. They're all doing kind of different things in their own little orbits around this, you know, national forest. And they're all having their own chance meetings with the bear. Some live, some die. And it doesn't really come together, I think, all the way at the end in terms of like how the characters that do survive meet up and like they they face the bear and then some of them live, some of them die. Like I would have liked it if it was just a bit simpler and just a bit more ridiculous. But um it it, it I think I would take away is like there's there's specific set pieces that are I think are really thrilling and fun and specific moments, specific character moments that really stood out to me. Overall, I thought Alden Ehrenreich was pretty good in this as just like a beaten down, looks like shit, um, drug dealer, son of a drug kingpin. You know, shout out Aaron Reich, obviously. He's about to have a really big year in 2023. He's in this. He'll be in the Oppenheimer ensemble from Christopher Nolan. Obviously, we don't really know how big that role is. And then he was in. he's in uh, Fair Play, the erotic finance thriller that Netflix picked up out of Sundance that got strong reviews. So shout out Alden Aaron Reich. I'm glad to see him back. He is a good actor, and he's good in this. Uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr., pretty solid. Um, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. as a cop, I thought was really funny, really good. His moments with uh, the drug guys, I think, was really good. This moment on a gazebo in the uh, in the forest was quite effective. Uh, Margot Martindale as the park ranger is probably some of the funniest stuff in the film. And like, there's this whole extended scene with the bear and these like um, like punk kids and. Then from there, there's this huge like chase scene, like race against the clock moment where these EMTs come into the park not knowing what's going on. And there's this whole chase with the ambulance and things go wrong. That was really good and really thrilling. Um, <laughs> Carrie Russell doesn't have a whole lot to do as the mom of Brooklyn Prince. You know, she's trying to save her daughter. That stuff's okay. Although I like the kids. I thought... um. The young boy who's with Brooklyn Prince, he's really funny, just has some really like frank, like sardonic line readings, really good. Um, Ray Liotta is kind of doing Ray Liotta things. That like whole like piece of the story in terms of like, his like role as like this American uh, drug dealer who needs to retrieve all this lost coke because of you know what he owes to the Colombians, blah, blah, blah. All that's like kind of contrived and like not that great. Like I would rather just be more streamlined and we just kind of focused on like the bear and like all that shit but i guess like for what it is it's pretty funny just out of its ridiculousness but i actually thought i would it would be funnier than it was like i still laughed i guess maybe i was just an easy mark for like this i was going in and my theater was laughing pretty consistently as well i think it was generally like people were having a good time with it but uh i think it could have been just a little bit more sophisticated i don't know like elizabeth banks directed one of the pitch perfect sequels the charlie's angels remake and now this it's like not not the best run as a director from her. Obviously, she's a great actor. But um, yeah, I think like I'm happy this movie is like finding success. You know, it's a mid-budget movie. All that budget really just went to making the CGI bear, which I think looks pretty good. Um, the CGI bear cubs uh, also looked really good. Um, so yeah, like this is going to be successful for Universal, just like Megan and Knock at the Cabin. Good for them. It's nice to see like something that is a basically an original movie with just a bunch of actors and find at least some modicum of success. And it's great that 
this is finding an audience. Like I can't be mad about that because we we need this to happen all the time. So shout out Cocaine Bear. It's uh, good enough, you know. But let me know what you think, of Cocaine Bear. Did you laugh more than me? Were you really into it? And for more movie reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. All right, and now let's conclude with Formula One Drive to Survive Season 5 on Netflix. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Formula One Drive to Survive Season 5 on Netflix. I'm going to give my full thoughts on the series, the series as a whole, and then go episode by episode, what I thought, what I think they left out, what I was happy they included, any insights I got. Just up front, I'm someone who is a new fan of Formula One, but I've watched every race in the last two years. I'm hardcore, super into it, and I now appreciate Drive to Survive. You know, this is obviously a very successful docu-series that is so paramount to Formula One growing in the United States. I view this series in a different light than I, I once did because now that I pay attention to the sport, you know, full-time, all the way, uh, all the way in, I know the story. So seeing how the story is then portrayed later on the series for Netflix, I think is very interesting in terms of like how this is a crafted series, how what narratives they choose to focus on, and I find that interesting. You know, I think the criticism that some of the F1 community has had for the series has merit to it, but I also think the value of Drive to Survive is largely unchanged, and I think overall season five is a huge improvement over season four, which I think was clearly the worst iteration of Drive to Survive and definitely the most open to its criticism in terms of like making fake narratives and stuff. The thing is, Formula One, why it's so awesome is that it is so rich with its own drama and narrative that does not need to be manufactured. I think largely with season five, Box to Box Films, production company that makes the series for Netflix, they kind of got that message themselves and kind of focused on the drama that was right there in the open from the 2022 Formula One season. So I was very happy to see that, and I hope that Drive to Survive continues uh, in the years to come because I think it's really illuminating and fun to see those those backroom shots and just catch conversations. And you know, is some stuff contrived for fun? You know, for B roll, like when we see Mattia and Gunter uh, driving a car around in uh, in Italy in the Dolomites. Yeah, obviously that's reality TV for you. But I think the docu series value is still really paramount, and the show is really successful at telling a story. So. Let's just get into it, uh, you know, episode by episode. So, um, obviously, this is spoilers for this series. I don't know why anyone would watch this and be concerned about that, but I'm just going to tell you what happens if you somehow were not wanting to know what happened in the 2022 Formula One season. But here we go. So, I think episode one does a really good job of setting the stage for this new era of Formula One with these new regulations, the huge change. You know, Will Buxton doing his thing, explaining things in broad terms for the layman. Uh, ground effect cars, they're completely new, completely different from the last era, the turbo hybrid era uh, that Mercedes dominated until, of course, uh, Red Bull took the driver's championship at the end of it. So 2022 is like a brand new situation and brand new for everyone. And there's a lot of doubt and um, unknown about it. I think they did a good job of setting that up. Along those lines, they kind of established that there's a lot of Ferrari pressure and expectations and Ferrari you know, their first time winning, or first time with like a really good chance to win in a long time, um, they're just kind of different in that regard. And I think they could, they could, it's, a, it's a really good foreshadowing, honestly, of what happens to Ferrari in the 2022 season. I think that was handled well. Also, um, they acknowledge that uh, Nikita Mazepin, of course, was dropped very uh, last minute due to his uh, uh, status as a Russian and... Kevin Madison comes back into Formula One. I thought that was, you know, it was a decent um, storyline to kind of focus on in the first episode. You know, Kevin Magnussen getting P5 on his return. Haas didn't have a whole lot to really gravitate towards. Then again, though, we got a lot of Mick later on in episode, uh, episode four. So, I don't know, like, in the process, we don't, you know, with Bahrain. And, and in the course of the series, we ignore uh, Guan Yu Zhou, or Zhou Guan Yu. We ignore uh, Zhou Guan Yu's arrival in the sport. Uh, getting points on debut. I think Joe kind of gets short shrift with this season, and I'm hoping that if he has a slightly stronger season in 2023, he'll probably get more shine on the series. But there probably just wasn't enough of a narrative with Alfa Romeo to tell, even with Botas joining the team. So that, that stood out to me, something that was left out. But I understand why they kind of focus on Madison's return here. Um, you know, obviously Haas, Steiner, big stars of the series in a certain sense. So I get it. Um, they also do a good job of setting up 
Dan Ricardo's difficult season uh, and career uh, to follow, of course, finishing P18 at Bahrain. Um, and then also showing you the Red Bull DNFs, perhaps presenting drama that ultimately didn't really bear out when, if you've watched the 2022 season, you know what happens uh, with Red Bull ultimately dominating for stop and dominating. They set it up that like it's a great chance for Ferrari and Ferrari has this huge lead, right? And as we know, that doesn't not doing anything right right after this episode two of course gets right into another gigantic storyline from the 2022 season which of course would be mercedes bottling it with this new era on the back foot and ultimately coming in third place because their car is just not as good as it needs to be with this porpoising you know and one thing that i wish they would have handled um you know when they would talk about porpoising they show everyone struggling with the bouncing and the porpoising from the ground effect in uh, at testing at bahrain before the season they acknowledge that everyone else is able to fix it pretty quickly and get it under control, but Mercedes can't. They never explicitly say that it's because of the aero design choices with the chassis and that this, quote, zero pod design of the Mercedes was just a flawed choice in, in that setup. Like, you, you have a really awesome scene of the guys on the grid before, like, the photo kind of examining the cars for the first time, and everyone's kind of looking at the Mercedes. Russell's making comments like, huh, don't know about that one. You know, Vettel's making jokes. They don't explicitly say that there was a reason why they couldn't just get under control like everyone else. I wish they would have made that a little bit more clear for the average viewer. Um, you, they show you the gigantic crash um, at Silverstone with uh, Joe and Russell, a Hamilton Silverstone podium. Um, they, they almost present that as like the first time Hamilton was on the podium um, in 2022, which was not actually the case. But um, of course, I was happy they showed through Ghost Hamilton from Silverstone, but they didn't overhype it because ultimately Hamilton didn't win the race. Um, that, that was a move that was so epic in the moment and like really got me hyped, but I'm, I'm glad they didn't like overdo it because ultimately Hamilton still came in third after that, 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 that the thing, right? Episode three, another great episode because it highlights another huge aspect of this season, which was Ferrari fucking up. God, um, obviously we talked about this every week as it happened, but Episode one, alluding to these high expectations, high pressure situation for Ferrari, for the drivers, for Mattia, for the leadership, and then just showing you uh, reliability issues, but most importantly, strategic uh, missed calls that cost Ferrari points, cost Ferrari podiums, cost Ferrari wins. You know, the Monaco box timing, Ferrari being in first and second to start Monaco and then not winning the race with either of those guys, absolutely ridiculous obviously the reliability at baku with signs was terrible and then i was happy they showed this to matias comments Donato, of course the team principal at ferrari matias comments on criticism levied at the team and almost him being in denial and another foreshadowing of like what's to come both for ferrari and for bonato's uh, position right uh keeping it going you have signs getting winning his first race ever after his first poll at Silverstone, but of course it's because of you know signs infamous stop inventing line right he overrode the strategy and won the race himself basically but in the process ferrari fucked over leclerc um and you had the sky commentators from the footage there ferrari won but they won with the wrong car and like ferrari's inability to put leclerc in the best position to succeed is established really well here um I think they did a pretty good job too of like showing you like how Max was out of position in that race game, the damage and stuff. Um, and then at the end, you you have Mattia doing the finger point at Leclerc, which was a huge thing, right? Like telling, like it was just clear that Ferrari was fucking up all year. And I think the show Drive to Survive does a good job of like hammering that home of like how that was being done. Um, episode four kind of takes us off the gas a little bit in terms of the most important stuff. You know, this is an episode about Haas and about Mick Schumacher. You know, the pressure of being Michael Schumacher's son, you know, his relationship with Sebastian Vettel, at least a little bit. It's kind of the most of the Vettel stuff we get all season is, is in this episode. And some foreshadowing about if you'll keep keep a seat. Um, I thought that was fine. I feel like, I don't know, like, there's just some, like, other stuff that I, I just found more interesting than, like, will Mick keep a seat? Because, like, Mick Schumacher was not a spectacular Formula One driver. You know, so on the other hand, there's a lot of drama. He has the name. I get it. I get why he gets an episode, but don't necessarily feel like I needed this because we're also going to get a Yuki Tsunoda episode again after last season. Like, I don't know. 
not my favorite, but I understand. Like, it's still well done for what it is. Episode five and six. I'm so happy they dedicated two episodes to this, which would be everything going on with Alpine and McLaren in terms of the battle for fourth place, as well as the absolute shit show that happens in the driver market when Sebastian Vettel announces retirement. Alonso decides to leave Alpine and go to Aston Martin, and then Alpine is seemingly unable to promote Oscar Piastri, their reserve, and lose him to McLaren, then have to decide who are they going to pick as their second driver to replace Alonso, and they ultimately go, of course, with Pierre Gasly, having him move over from Alpha. I love how they did all this, you know, having Zach Brown, having Otmar Schaffnauer. I think they did a really good job of highlighting that drama, highlighting how crazy that was. I was surprised to see Piastri actually talk, um, you know, to to the to to Netflix, talk to Box to Box. Like that was awesome. They had footage of Piastri, and you, know, you see Mark Webber a little bit, his manager. Um, they did a pretty good job of setting all that up, and then later on with the Yuki episode as well, you know that uh, Pierre gets replaced with Nick DeVries after his kind of uh, shockingly successful um, substitution race at Williams, where he gets points on debut. That was all done really well. I think for the most part, they made that very coherent for someone who might not know it. The one thing I noted, though, about how they portray this is that obviously they have to condense it in terms of like how how much time they dedicate to it. But there was like one key figure that's missing from this whole story, and that would be uh, Colton Herta, of course, the American IndyCar driver, IndyCar winner, who uh, Red Bull, of course, wanted to race for them at AlphaTauri. And... There was there was kind of condition on they were not going to let Pierre go, join Alpine, let him out of contract unless they could get their man, and Herta, of course, can't get the super license in the end, isn't eligible to race in F one. It doesn't work out, but then of course Nick DeVries stuff happens and Red Bull has another option. They go for him. It would have been cool perhaps to if maybe it's another episode you could have talked about the Herta not actually making it into F one due to due to the stuff with super license and. Contrast that with the other American driver who's joining Williams next year, Logan Sargent, who does get a super license out of F2. Um, I understand why they don't do it. You know, they kind of focus on people we've already know in the context of the series, you know, Alonzo and especially Pierre. I understand, but it did kind of stand out to me. He's like, oh, there was, there, there was a few other elements to this that you had to, I guess, uh, leave out, you know. And of course, they had to focus on McLaren is taking Piastri because they're replacing Daniel Ricardo. Ricardo has been the star of Drive to Survive basically the entire time. I mean, to think about it, season one, 20, 2018 season, that was, that was him at Red Bull. So you got his end of his Red Bull days, all his Renault days, and all his McLaren days are in Drive to Survive. Like the whole Danny Rick experience has largely been captured uh, on this series. And, you know, they do a good job, I think, of showing you how the fall from grace went, you know, and Lando Norris is kind of off the cuff. Her uh, frank comments about it are right there, pretty clear. Like uh, the results just weren't there. And as much as we all love Ricardo, it just didn't work out at McLaren, and he got replaced with a yeah, a newcomer. And they don't actually like tell you that he joins uh, Red Bull as a third driver for next year. They kind of left that out, but they make it clear that you know Ricardo is not racing next year. So overall, I thought four or sorry, uh, five and six did a really good job of all the Alpine McLaren drama, which was so interesting for so long. Um, so I was really happy about all that. Episode seven uh, is, I think, probably the dis- most disappointing episode of the season. That's an episode about uh, Chaco Perez, you know, leading up to his win at Monaco and the pressure on him as the second driver at Red Bull, the, you know, the second driver behind Max. We know the history of Red Bull's drivers behind Max. They don't last long, right? Checo has to perform. And can continue to perform to keep that seat. They set that up. You know, Checo wins twice last, uh, won twice last year. You know, starting with Monaco. Um, the thing is, though, I just think like there was a huge element to this that they just completely ignored. Right? They don't. They don't go into uh, Brazil, 2022. Uh, they acknowledge it in the final episode. You know, that was George Russell's first win, the first Mercedes win uh, of the season as well. A uh, huge moment. I'm happy they at least included it briefly because that was. You know, uh, a significant event in the season. But they also don't factor in that Max refused to give Checo a place to help him fight for second place in the driver championship. Checo lost second place to Leclerc partially due to that. And they had a whole beef over 
uh, Checo's Monaco qualifying crash that apparently, allegedly, Checo did on purpose to secure position. That needed to be on this series. That was a huge thing. That was in the open. Um, and that's just completely ignored. I think that's a huge missed opportunity, but it's also natural, real drama that happened and is right for the show. It's not manufactured. This is stuff that happened. This is stuff we talked about as it happened. I don't know why you have an episode about Checo and Red Bull, but you'd leave out something like that. Max dominated last year, won 15 races. They made this clear by the end of the series, end of the season. You should at least include like the one dramatic aspect about his season apart from the early DNFs. I don't know. It feels like a missed opportunity for what this show is trying to do. Episode 8, another Yuki Tsunoda episode after last season. In a sense, I get why they're following this up. I think they did a nice job, too, setting it up. Pierre's leaving. Pressure's on Yuki to perform. Nick DeVries is coming in. Nick DeVries is going to want to be a killer. Someone who's going to be a rookie at 28. Took forever to get into F1, despite being an F2 and F Formula E champion. DeVries is not Pierre. I like how they kind of juxtapose that. Whether that's like truly like DeVries' intention or not, I think that's like a great example of like making this good TV. I enjoyed that. Also, a nice way to show you at um, Austin when Stroll uh, does that ridiculous weave um, into Alonzo. I'm glad I left that in because, man, that was an absurd uh, fuck up from Lance Stroll. Um, yeah, so basically, they're setting up 2023 the way it is for Yuki, which is a make-or-break season for him. I w- we would not be shocked at all if Yuki gets dropped by Alphatari and Red Bull if he doesn't perform. Uh, episode 9 goes into the cost cap stuff, I think, pretty well. You know, um, I would have liked them to explicitly say what the penalty was in terms of a fine and also the uh, loss of wind tunnel time for Red Bull um, and kind of hype that up for 2023 and beyond in terms of how that can impact their development. They just kind of left out that uh, the result of the penalty, um, perplexingly, I'm sure that'll be focused on next year at the start of uh, next season. I get it, but still, I would like them to say that. And episode 10, I thought was also pretty solid in terms of explaining Ferrari's strat and reliability problems that continued on and how Red Bull just was able to dominate. They basically allude to Bonato's axe, you know, Fred Vasseur coming in. They tell you about George's first win. They kind of set up Ferrari versus Mercedes for second place, which wasn't really as dramatic as they let it out to be. But I understand there wasn't a whole lot of storylines at Abu Dhabi apart from that. And of course, McLaren and uh, Alpine for P4. So I understand. Got the tease for Las Vegas for 2023, the return of Hulkenberg without explicitly telling you that Mick was dropped. I wish they would just make it super clear for the average viewer. Um, They briefly acknowledged Kevin Magnuson going on pole. Honestly, I feel like that should have been factored in somehow into the Mick episode, episode four. Like that was a obviously very lucky fluky situation, but also an amazing moment for Magnuson and for Haas. Like you could use a few more minutes with that, I think. Um, but yeah, in terms of stuff that was left out, I mentioned, of course, all the Checo uh, Max drama at Brazil, uh, Joe's points on debut. Um, you know, I think one thing that would have been nice is like, in terms of telling the story of how like the com- competition went, like when, and they do. There's an awesome scene of the team principals talking with uh, Dominicali and Toto blowing a stop about how things are unsafe right now with the current situation. Horner telling him to fix his fucking car, et cetera, et cetera. Right? I wish they would have told you that what happened was that there was a regulation update for safety reasons. The floor had to be raised. The right height had to be raised. And in the process, that hurt Ferrari's ability to run their car and didn't hurt Red Bull nearly as much. And as we knew, watching the season, the second half, you know, Red Bull had the race pace, Ferrari had the quality pace, Ferrari chewed their tires. Well, like, I wish they could have like made that a little bit more clear about like what happened in the course of how these cars were going, uh, the floor change hurting Ferrari more. I wish they could have known that just just a second. I don't know. Um, also, in a sense, I get why they don't mention it, but technically, George Russell beat Lewis last year on points. Um, you know, technically, he finished ahead, but. They could have juxtaposed that with the fact that Lewis was doing more experimental setup work and like trying to fix stuff, and he, in all likelihood, would have beaten George had he been running the same kinds of setups. And of course, as we know, um, you know, in the course of watching the race, for the most part, even though George did get a win, Lewis didn't. Lewis had the edge in quality and generally in race pace. It would have been cool if they 
focus a little bit more on that. You know, George is the first teammate to beat Lewis on points since Rosberg in 2016. It is significant, even if it's a bit fluky and we don't expect to see it in 2023. I don't know. You get so much Haas. I don't know. Maybe we could have seen the fact that they kept getting fucked with the black and orange flags. Um, You know, certainly Gunther had something to say about that and curse of the camera. I don't know. Um, Also, like, they tell you, you show you Max dominating the last few episodes, you know, kind of concluding the season with the series, but they didn't explicitly say that Max won from like 14th at Spa. Like, they, I think they should have like made that clear just how dominant his season was in the end. Um, I would have loved to see the drama of um, when Alonzo and Hamilton had contact, and I forget what race it was, and then. Alonzo makes those comments about Lewis only winning in a good car, and then Lewis tweets the McLaren picture of him on the top podium and Alonzo below him when they were teammates. Like, I love that shit. Uh, that's super dramatic. We know how Alonzo is, and Lewis knows how to take it uh, and send it back out when he needs to. That would have been fun just to include, but I guess there's not really a connective line to include there, so I understand why it's not there. Overall, though, I think Drive to Survive Season 5 did a really good job of showing you a lot of different storylines from the majority of the teams once again. You know, apologies to Aston, apologies to Alpha and Williams. We didn't really get much of them, but we got a decent amount of everybody else, and there was a lot to really get into with all those other teams. So I think it's a pretty effective season of this show. I'm looking forward to next season. And, of course, I'm looking forward to the actual season of the sport, which I, I love. So if you're into the actual sport, of course, hit me up. Tweet at me. I'll be uh, I'll be online talking about it as the season goes in. Can't wait. And then, you know, I'll be reviewing Try to survive season six when it comes out in a year. So for more F1 when it comes around and for more TV reviews, subscribe. I'll see you next time. All right, that concludes the pod this week. A lot of great stuff, big one here. And we got an even bigger pod coming up next week. Just get a load of all the shit to talk about. Mandalorian season three premiere coming out on Disney Plus. Creed three from Michael B. Jordan with Jonathan Majors as the bad guy. Let's fucking go. Uh, Chris Rock. His stand-up special for Netflix, first one since 2018, first one since The Slap with Will Smith, broadcast live Saturday night on Netflix. That'll be interesting. Perry Mason season two is finally coming on HBO. New music from Slow Tie, Cali Uchis, and a guy called Macklemore. Operation Fortune from Guy Ritchie, new movie. And oh yeah, uh, Oscar predictions. We gotta do those too. Oscars are almost here big one coming up so make sure you subscribe youtube.com slash nostalgia pod linktree.com slash nostalgia pod make sure you get that however you can and i'll see you next time hey.